full dork mode on this yeah, conversation. It's, it's really the only way I know how to uh, talk about some of these topics is is full dork. Okay, great. So really, it's just me joining mm-hmm. in this in <laughs> the normal uh, talking to himself conversations of of Zach Greg. Um, you know, personally, actually, my goal for this conversation in part is to just see how many tangents we can get you uh, unleashed on. Um, but we'll have to see. Uh, so, uh, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, this is the training edge podcast. Uh, my name is Isaiah Newkirk. I am again, joined by, uh, the Zach Greg, Zach, um, actually joined me on the podcast in 2021, I believe. Um, it was a great episode, but that was in yeah, team camp in 2021. So it was a while ago. Um, so he's another return guest. He's actually my uh, second uh, after Tanner Putt last week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he is a uh, very qualified bike racer for Project Echelon um, and one of our uh, best TTers and part of the Aero Nerds group. Aero Nerds club. Slack channel. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he's also a fast cat coach. So uh, we're actually doing this together in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and today was the first day that we got snow believe it or not so uh it's that time of year again and i already have messages from athletes being like oh man i have to ride the trainer i'm sorry so um anyways i wanted to start this with uh some more questions and my first question is what is your favorite workout you have given an athlete in the last two weeks Ooh, the last two weeks it's probably been um some like high torque sprint work Okay. Uh, cause I have a lot of people who are, you know, mainly focusing on the road or they're getting to that like kind of middle point of their cyclocross season. And, um, yeah, it's, it's something that I'm not very good at. And I like, you know, hearing everybody else's kind of complaining about doing, you know, 20 and 30 second sprints from kind of a slow rolling start. So yeah, those are, those are always fun. Okay. Well, uh, walk me through the workout. What's the workout like lookouts specifically? Um, Typically, yeah, like kind of good ramp, warm up, get nice and loose. Um, And then it depends on the the athlete. So some of them are kind of like from a standing uh, start and then just like a high torque moment kind of sprint. Um, And then for some of them who are like very early on uh, getting back into things, it's like more neuromuscular focus. So it's like start at 25 miles an hour, go until you like kind of rep your cadence out, try and hit like good watts um, and do that for like six or eight reps. And um I think we we figured it out this out last week that like eight reps is a lot of reps because yeah, um, I actually had one of these workouts too and Isaiah joined me for it and um, I died by about five reps and we were pretty broken yeah <laughs> I mean I, okay all right, right let me let me <laughs> throw a caveat in here I was off I was you know when he would finish a rep I would be we'll give it we'll give me a you know a nice number I would say like two hundred meters off the back so like it was he was doing his workout and I was doing half of it is essentially what happened and then I bailed on the final two sets so um yeah that's that's where I'm at in life uh okay then we go into what is your favorite workout you have done in the last two weeks Ooh, and it the, can't be the same answer <laughs> yeah it can't be the same answer um it's funny so yeah we'll we'll probably talk talk about this at some point but um I'm trying to be more explosive as an athlete so yeah um everything right now feels like it's sprints and cadence work. Um, so I think, uh, this is the first time I've ever done accelerations on recovery rides. Mm. And so it's basically like, you know, you stay seated, you try to hit whatever RPM, uh, within like 10 seconds on kind of a downhill or tailwind section. Um, 
and I'm really enjoying it because it's just like so new, um, kind of seemingly goofy, but, um, you know, my foot speed as like time trial steady state guy is like uh, horrendous. <laughs> so doing these has been really fun because even in a couple session sessions, you really adapt to it. Cool. Cool. Something to do on recovery spins too. So it's kind of nice. Um, all right. And then final question is what are you going to be for Halloween? I've not given it any thought. I'm going to oh, be safe. On. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to be, <laughs> be safe. <laughs> what is yeah, safe? I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to get in any trouble that will uh, compromise my training in the, uh, in the, in okay. the coming yeah. months. Great answer. So, He's not going to go yeah. raging is I'm, the answer. Yeah. I'm going to be nervous. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll try. Uh, this podcast is going to be out after Halloween. So I'll, we'll, I'll keep you posted on the next one. What, uh, if in fact, um, Zach got into some shenanigans for Halloween or not. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's get into the thick of it. Uh, so the topic for today and the reason I asked Mr. Greg to join me is, uh, I want to discuss the, basically a really com constant conversation and, uh, debate, which is kind of that arrow versus power give and take. And basically when is the aerodynamic gain, uh, worth a loss of power and vice versa? And then as a result, how to find the line in between the two. Um, I want to keep this pretty open and just like a conversation of going in different directions because I think we both think about this pretty regularly. And then um, I actually thought of this conversation because I was uh, having a conversation with an athlete on uh, how to improve aerodynamic gains on gravel. So we can we can take this into several different directions for sure. But, um, you know, TTing is an easy place to go for um, more simplistic terms, but, um, I'm also going to, uh, kind of split this up into two different directions. And, uh, the first will be more on the equipment realm. So, um, but to step back, I would like to hear what is your general opinion and approach to this issue. So just to kind of like as like an all-encompassing, if you had a couple sentence to describe your summary or stance or opinion on kind of the arrow versus power, uh, yeah, conversation, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you, uh, were speaking to gravel, uh, because I think most aerodynamic principles can be applied to pretty much any bike you're riding, um, and almost any discipline, right? So as soon as we kind of pass the threshold of like 15 miles an hour, aerodynamic uh, aerodynamics and aerodynamic drag, um, increases in importance, uh, pretty much to infinity as, as quick as you can go, it, it becomes more and more important up to that point. Um, so I would say that we always prioritize power, um, and power maintenance because, you know, um, if you're losing power, you're compromising something more than just Watts. Mm. Um, it's like a total body stress that has like, kind of like flipped a flipped a switch or like passed a threshold where like you're not uh you're not in an optimal position so knowing that um and like noticing when power drops is like a good um thing to really like focus on when you're trying to become more aerodynamic um so i'd say for almost all the athletes i coach that are tt specialists um like 10 to 15 watt drop from their road bike to their time trial bike in position is uh, probably the most as far as what I would accept um, and allow them to like stay in that position. And so, you know, you think about it on any bike, right? Gravel, 
uh, racing, especially if you lose 10 watts over 10 hours, um, it's, it's a tremendous time difference, uh, whether it feels like it or not in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's an interesting world because essentially being able to track, like you said, 15 Watts, for example, like that's not always something that's going to be, uh, like very definitive to point out. And it can take a lot of work to actually figure out what that number is. And, uh, if it's again, being offset by, um, some sort of benefit on the back end through an aerodynamic advantage. Um, but we'll get into, into a little bit of that. Um, let's start with, I wanted to dive into equipment out of the gate. And, uh, the purpose of this is basically to simple, like basically pull out very specific things that people will do adaptations that are being done right now. And then we can chat through, uh, how those gains can be beneficial, how they can actually be, uh, you know, a negative it can be the other way around. And it's just going to allow us to get into the conversation. So it's not necessarily just about that specific equipment, but also like what that equipment can entail. And then by, you know, as a fact, getting into the nuances and b- behind form and, uh, output and so on and so forth. So, um, we can go back and forth, kind of, uh, throwing out different equipment pieces and then pulling off of what that means and kind of where, uh, you know, how that could affect an athlete, uh, both positive and negatively. So I'm going to start with the easiest one I would say to throw out there, which is basically just the frontal area of a TT bike. So mm. air bars, um, stack, like the whole shebang, uh, it's pretty, you know, commonly focused on and makes a pretty darn big difference. So I'm going to throw that one out there. Um, what do you think? I guess, yeah, what do you think of the that debate of like how to set up, how would you approach that essentially? Yeah, okay. So um, basically the principle is that the, the rider themselves is the primary source of aerodynamic drag. Um, so body position is key. Um, and, and basically any purchases you make uh, uh, above and beyond like what is stock on your time trial bike should be for the purpose of a better body position or a more comfortable body position on your time trial bike. So, um, with that being said, you know, I have very fancy aero bars and extensions and, and all the stuff. Um, but it was actually the mounting plate, uh, that I was after, um, in purchasing that to allow me to have more reach totally on my bike. Um, so that I could assume a more aerodynamic position. So, um, I think, when you are fitting yourself or kind of looking at pictures and things like that of other riders who have, you know, kind of established themselves as, as aerodynamic, um, always start higher and go lower. Um, so it's, it basically comes down to like the highest point on your body should always be your shoulder blades or your traps when you're in a shrugged position. And if you can't achieve that position, then you need to go higher. Um, or you need to spread your arm cups further apart. Um, but basically don't start in the most extreme position, start higher up. And then if it's feasible or kind of realistic for you, then you can lower yourself down. Um, cause obviously, you know, if our, if our elbows were like touching the pavement, we would probably be more aerodynamic, but not many people can necessarily like achieve that, that position yeah. with any level of consistency or comfort either. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's, let's, let's try this from a different way. Um, 
when people first get a TT bike, mm-hmm. or even we can say like, you know, people that have had them for a long time, what is the common thing to do that it maybe isn't necessarily right, but people, that's how people approach setting up their TT bike. What is like the common thing people will do? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they just take all the spacers out yep. and then they look at the ground yep. and, Slam it. Um, yep. <laughs> and yeah, lower is better. Yeah. Lo- yeah. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, yeah, um, among the aero nerds now, now the, the funny phrase is lower is slower. <laughs> um, because basically you're trying to bring your, your hands closer to your face mm-hmm. and maintain this kind of closed up position. Um, and then move that lower in space if you can. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, purchasing equipment and doing things to kind of facilitate that goal is the most important thing. I think, would you, would you say then it's better to start high and go lower mm-hmm. as that is, you know, repeatable or sustainable? Yeah, uh, definitely. And like leaving yourself a little bit high mm-hmm. overall is going to be better. And we'll talk about kind of the morphological, physiological implications out later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say the classic mistake is buying a bike that's a size too small um, and then you don't have enough reach, yep. which is the big thing, or the head tube's so small that you end up, you know, having to buy like three extra stacks of spacers. Um, <laughs> and yeah, buying a bike that's too small and then slamming it. Yeah. Um, and then it's just like not comfortable. You don't even want to train on it. Yeah. Um, because it's such an extreme position that you know, unless you're doing race intensity, you're not able to like maintain the position really well. Um, and you know, if, if, if I ask somebody to do like a two and a half hour ride on their TT bike and they're like, Oh man, that sounds like a long time. Then that's like an immediate red flag to me that maybe their position is just not optimal for them. Hmm. Interesting. Cause so what about like the old school thought of your TT bikes never going to be comfortable? Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Um, I think I agree with that <laughs> to a certain <laughs> point. Yeah, I just like totally went back on myself. But yeah. um, when you are going full gas in the position, it's not comfortable. Yeah, um, it requires energy to pull yourself into that position. Um, it requires a lot of focus and and like maintenance and kind of training. Um, but you should be able to do ninety percent of that perfect optimized position for two and a half three hours. Yeah. Yep. I would agree with that. Um, I was uh, listening to a podcast actually today um, about uh, Dan Bingham, the individual who helped with uh, Ghana's hour record, and he was making the claim that he uh, rides his TT bike for four hours, and basically he will ride the trainer, so turbo, um, and he'll do three-hour sessions and just get off once to go to the restroom mm-hmm. but the kicker there is that he never leaves his bars so he yeah. never gets out and that's a constant for you know you know if you break it up in the middle that's an hour and a half straight uh with uh maybe five minute break in between pretty gnarly yeah i mean that's what it takes to be the best yeah. in the world yeah. right yeah so. to get, i mean especially towards the hour record i mean um, impl- yeah, application of that towards a uh, 20 minute TT is a little different, but, um, similar concept still though. So, um, okay. Yeah. I mean the, I think the, what I see, especially within my athletes is just, yeah, they get the stock TT bike, they try and slam it as far as they can. And, uh, then from there basically just forget about it and mm-hmm. then focus straight on power and don't worry about position 
and then we have to do some backtracking of going back to position and being like hey like how are you really doing in in this and then how are you doing it in effort um as well because it starts to deteriorate really fast so yeah um all right so uh what other equipment do you got yeah, well, I'd, I'd say so the application for this for road bikes and gravel bikes, too, mm-hmm. yeah. is that um, if you put air bars on your gravel bikes, the the pads and all of the, like, uh, extensions and everything need to be about half the length of what you think they do. Um, because basically, if you try and put your elbows on your handlebars, it's a very stretched position. It closes yeah. your hip angle and kind of pulls you forward. So your saddle height's lower and, like got all this like stuff going on now so something to think about and like apply this to any bike is that your position in your like aerodynamic situation should always be less extreme than what you think it should be um and so that means you know if you're a tall guy and you've got 20 centimeters to drop on your road bike like you might need to turn your hoods up or something and give yourself you know even in that kind of bent arm aerodynamic position give yourself a more relaxed fit overall um, yep. instead of that super aggro, like can barely touch your drops kind of position, um, that a lot of guys tend to adopt cause it looks cool, you yep. know? Yeah. What, uh, one thing I've been to that point, one conversation I've been having as of late is like, ah, what about aero bars for unbound and for, you know, steamboat and like other races that people are thinking about, uh, for next year. Um, and that's a whole nother level is like putting basically clip on extensions onto your gravel bike or road bike. Um, and that's just like a whole nother mess. Cause then you're ch- basically adapting a road position to have a, like a more frontal area position. And oftentimes I could, I've seen it done very, very poorly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can think of a couple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the same thing is like the shorten it because that's another thing to think about is if you are putting your basically arm cups on your basically the tops of your road bars then as an extension you are going to be pretty far out there Mm -hmm. and as a result you also need to be thinking about like all right you're running a road saddle which isn't adapt to that closed of a hip angle and then all of a sudden you're oftentimes you see it where people are just like flat lined on their back and then you can see that they've closed their hip angle off entirely just by doing that to themselves so yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, under strain, like, you get less flexible. That that whole, like, posterior chain kind of tightens up, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're having back cramps 100 miles into unmount because you thought this was going to be, like, the trick, mm-hmm. and it ends up being the thing that, like, completely ruins your race. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I'd, I'd say same exact approach to what we were talking about with the time trial bike is, is like, start relaxed and, you know, give it a good test ride. Um and then from there, if you think that you can adopt a more extreme position, like, go ahead and try it. So uh, how do you, uh, what would be an example of running clip-on bars? I know this is like a really <laughs> niche, like, <laughs> example. But, uh, yeah, if you're running clip-on bars on a gravel bike, what would be the least aggressive way of approaching it to start to ease in then over time? Yeah, um, a lot of systems now will have their own stack. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess the, the two options would be have a system with its own stack, and that way you can really take advantage of it and just start with the arm cups and the extensions like maybe a couple inches above your bars, um, or just put some spacers under your stem and raise the entire thing up. Um, 
And that way, you know, the arrow bars are going to kind of be in the way of you, like, yeah. uh, riding on your hoods a whole lot anyway. So you'll be, like, adopt your drops position almost to where your hoods used to be. Yeah. Um, and in that way, you can stay more more bent arm, more controlled on the bike. Um, everything's higher and closer to you. So when you are in your arrow bars, it's not such a stretch. Um, and the same thing, like, cut the arrow bar essentially in half. Yeah. Um, and that way you're not. Uh, persuaded into grabbing onto the end of it um, and it being so far away from you that now you're in this really stretched out compromised position yeah definitely definitely um yeah i mean being that that i mean we, we can go down yeah. the handling side of things maybe we should not um but the that's the same thing is like yep. at what point are you actually helping your handling out by shortening your reach um versus elongating it uh, and oftentimes on gravel bikes, that's rather freaking important. Mm -hmm. So yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Any other points on that? No. Okay. I think that's it. All right. All right. All right. Um, and we'll dive back into that in a bit, but, uh, let's see what, do you have any example of equipment? I've got yeah. A few more. Let's, all let's right. start with like the, the free speed kind of stuff, the stuff that's always going to be better for you. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I think arrow socks are never going to be worse yeah. unless they fall down. So it's always something to look into, um, even for like a 10 hour race, right? Just get some black ones. And that way, if they get dirty, you can wash them. Yep. Um, but that's always worth a couple Watts. Um, sometimes Is five it, Watts. So I think it was what, like three over the course of a, an hour at 30. Is that right? Maybe even a little yeah. less. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So pretty, pretty decent. I mean, especially over, you know, we, uh, I think the industry still kind of isolates these particular equipments as like roadie or even TT, like even if you go even farther, but really it's like over the course of, if you're talking a 10 hour race, um, your percentage probably above, you know, a pretty sizable margin of, uh, speed in order to get a good aerodynamic advantage from is going to be pretty darn significant. So yeah, it's, it, yeah. Yeah. So they're never not worth it, you know, <laughs> unless they fall down, <laughs> unless they fall down. Um, so yeah, my fellow big calf people, um, you gotta be careful about what size you get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, good fitting, uh, skin suit, road suit, you mm -hmm. know, those kind of things. Um, even for a 10 hour race or especially for a 10 hour race, like if you're wearing a Jersey <laughs> and bibs and it's collected in parts and kind of flappy, like you're losing watts and it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. What, okay. Let's define what is a good fitting suit. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So the, yeah. And we, and we've moved away from where it's like, you can't even stand up and that's yeah. like, yeah. you know, the, the side of a good suit. Um, I would say minimal amount of wrinkles once you've adjusted it, um, to kind of like sit on your body appropriately. Um, and so really the, the areas like, uh, your hip crease um, are always going to be a little bit wrinkled, but you should never have uh, like the flappiness like you would on a vest around your mm. neck or your shoulders. Um, that's usually a good sign that your jersey's too big or if it collects a lot in the front, like near your gut, um, that is kind of a sign that it's it's not optimal. So sometimes switching from jersey and bibs to a skin suit for those events is, uh, is really good. Um, as usually they've got the same amount of pockets. It might be a little bit thinner material. Hmm. Might have some trip lines on the on the arms. All those things are kind of a gain um, compared to 
just jersey and bibs. Yeah, and that's in position, right? Like not just like you put the suit on and you're standing up. Right. It's in in uh, riding position, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. Okay, interesting. Uh, the yeah, those are good. I had um, let's do let's do road bars. I'm curious on um, because like the you know the aerodynamic road bars or flat top road bars mm-hmm. have you done any investigation the difference there i think um i think there is a difference and it and it's kind of like the the hierarchy of of like uh sleekness and, and mm. design from basically like round bars with a bunch of cables mm, yeah. going everywhere um that is obviously the slowest um and then if you have an aerodynamic bar uh Compared to a round bar, it's usually like two watts, three watts, something like that. It's not significant. It's something. Um, but then once the cables are internally routed, um, basically through the bar, that's kind of another watt. Mm. And then if they're internally routed all the way into the frame without ever being exposed, so through your stem or things like that, then that's another watt or two. Sure. So, um, you know, if you want to throw a couple hundred bucks at this and save yourself five watts, um, that's cool, <laughs> but that's not necessarily the like best use of money if you're just trying to get a little bit more aerodynamic. Yeah, you know, socks are like ten dollars. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they're probably five watts, so um, it can help. And it's also like maybe the mental aspect of having something that looks really sleek and, and fast um, can help too. Um, but a lot of us use them because they're are they're flared. So yeah, yeah. Um, they'll be a little bit more narrow at your hoods and your hoods will be able to tilt in. So it's a little more ergonomic and efficient for you to have that bent elbow kind of tuck position um, as opposed to as using them just because they're in an aerodynamic shape. One thing I was meaning to talk about with some of this stuff is um, what are the disadvantages of doing these things? And we talked about it, like, obviously, if your socks fall down, that's a fairly bad disadvantage but um what about with bars for example so you're even if you go the flared route like if you're flaring hoods inward what are some of the disadvantages that can take place oh yeah this is my like this is my pet peeve right here you you hit the nail on the head like if you if you turn your hoods in and your elbows flare out you have created a net loss situation because you have increased your total frontal area and you have sacrificed now handling skill and comfort and you kind of look like a, a silly guy out there with your elbows like sticking out further than your hips. Um, so I encourage all the juniors listening to this podcast, stop. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so basically, you know, the, the best way to, to figure out if your hoods are turned in too much or your aerodynamic position is not optimal is just a picture of you in a race. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you are ever seeing the wind in a race, you have to be kind of adopting whatever your version of an aerodynamic position is. Um, and then from there, you know, if, if that version is like all wonky because your equipment setup is bad, then you can, you at least know and now you can fix it. So um, kind of the rule of thumb is, you know, if you're, you're putting your elbows at your sides and locked against your torso, and then you just move them forward yeah. Um, yeah, so that your elbows are kind of sitting in free space. That's where your hood should be. And your hands should basically just lock straight into your hoods. Um, if they are too narrow overall, you're like 
breathing and, and just general respiration will start pushing your elbows out and it'll become more and more difficult to support your torso and the position just gets bad. Um, and then if they're too wide, you're just kind of giving away watts by increasing your total um, Space. frontal area. Yeah. 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 Um, and really the only benefit of that is, I guess you can claim comfort, you can claim handling, you can um, sort of claim breathing capacity a little bit, mm-hmm. but yeah, the negative, I mean, really a lot of, there's a point of pretty clear return on that one too, yep. where yep. it's like, okay, we've moved on from the era of 44 bars yeah. um, into like 30s. Um, when, I guess like, and this is a whole nother topic, but breathing and ability to have like full lung expansion is a pretty big deal. Um, I guess, do you have a hard rule on that? Do you have rules on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're ever in a position where you feel like your breathing is restricted or things are like really uncomfortable um, and you kind of have that sensation of like the blood welling up in your face a little bit, <laughs> yeah. um, obviously something is suboptimal. Really, um, and one of the reasons like we're now adopting these higher up front end positions is that you you should be able to relax into your time trial position and then when it's appropriate to really pull things and and shrug um, as kind of the final step. Mm-hmm. So um, if you yeah if you're if you're feeling really cramped or you're having trouble breathing in a full breath like you can't uh, gut breathe and like really expand and contract your abdomen, your position is probably too extreme, um, and that has a lot of like implications over your whole body, right? Like your your body's gonna find a way to get a full breath in and like make sure that you have fully oxygenated blood. And if your position is reliant on that not happening, um, at some point things are gonna switch and you're just gonna look like a turtle. And you know, your your head's gonna be like a mile away from your hands and like your face is gonna be beat red and you know what I mean? Like, uh, so yeah, that's an, another great reason to like kind of stay up. Um, and I guess the final, the final big reason is that your hip, uh, angle can get really closed. Um, and when that happens, like you get suboptimal blood flow to your legs and you feel that like really like heavy loading in your quads, um, like you can't produce full power. Um, and there's just kind of the stretch sort shortening cycle of like your glutes and like all the muscles in your legs that get, uh, impaired if you're in a too, uh, extreme position. Mm-hmm. And um, then you just lose power. And that's where a lot of people will notice uh, power loss more than anything is when their hip becomes too, uh, or their hip angle becomes too closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's activation and recruitment. Um, if you are essentially uh, in basically limiting yourself, you're only going to be able to use uh, you know, partial amounts of your dominant muscle groups, which is always a negative um, yeah. So, okay. So we've, <laughs> we're, we've unlocked quite a bit. Uh, so breathing, um, obviously, uh, ability to sustain position and then also, uh, your ability to actually recruit and use your muscles in a, in a dominant way or in a, in a efficient way. Um, all right. So what other gear you got? Um, I always like a good arrow helmet. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, in, uh, in the current year, most of them are breathable enough and like comfortable enough that you're not feeling like you're melting mm. by wearing one. Um, and they're always good for a couple watts, you know, as long as you're uh, kind of paying attention to how they sit on your head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, we're we work with Cask, and um, Cask is always super good about having uh, aerodynamic helmet options that are breathable, not too heavy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. What uh, negatives? I wonder what negatives that you can think of for an aero helmet. Um, I think weight sometimes. So um, I don't think they make this anymore, but Laser had an aero helmet. I won't name the model just for whatever. Um, but it was like uh, it was like half a kilogram. Oh, it was like 400 and something gram helmet um, where the cast one is like 200 and something gram. So like um, I think in that situation, it, it kind of begs the question of like, uh, am I just carrying this around? Is it like melting my brain uh, yeah. by having this big hot piece of plastic on um, where I could have had something like more vented and more comfortable and a little bit lighter weight? Um, but almost universally, like, again, if you if you plan on hitting the wind on anything other than, like, a super steep climb at the finish of a race, like, having the aero helmet on at some point in the race is going to help you. Yeah. Um, per that per, uh, that same podcast that I listened to, they did you know they stuck Ghana's helmet in a freezer? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, it's just, like, that little bit of change in core temp for a moment <laughs> yeah i mean and the hour the hour is is so specific and in, into what it requires it is. um yeah what was it at collegiate ttt nationals one time a team all froze their helmets and then you know halfway through <laughs> like couldn't see because all the water was melting yeah. out in yeah. their faces that's amazing that's awesome. so we've come a long way <laughs> yeah <laughs> shout out to those guys the real innovators <laughs> yeah the true aero nerds um yeah that's i, I think the one thing that you know personally i worked through as an athlete was the noise change of wearing an aero helmet like a true tt helmet not okay. like yeah. an aero road helmet um that messed with me and it took me a long time to learn to be in that space so essentially oftentimes aero tt helmets cover your ears and as a result they uh almost muffle sound and kind of put you in your own vortex and that like allowed me to get in my own head even more so i had to mm. learn to be okay with that silence um which was a really random random thing so yeah that's, yeah that's really interesting um and i know some people uh will use cotton balls or yep. earplugs or something like that so that it's like a different version of the yeah. same silence yeah um personally it's never bothered me um but i'd, I'd say for those those people like practicing your TT helmet, you know, even if you have sunglasses on instead of your visor, um, it's probably still going to be, you know, kind of that muffled, uh, sensation version. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, and it, it's like a good rule to never show up to a start line having not prepared, uh, in, in training with all of your equipment and things like that. So that something like that doesn't surprise you and throw you off your game. Totally. And that's like why, you know, even though we kind of, you know, uh, laugh at those individuals out there in their TT helmet and uh, <laughs> tri-spoke and rear disc and full setup. It's like, it is, an, it is a good thing. It's a good practice to go out and do those true mock runs and get used to it. It yeah. is. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, let's do gearing. Interesting one. Yeah. Okay. So I had a conversation recently with an athlete about changing uh front rings mm -hmm. and or switching to a one by 
um, and the changes in aerodynamic gains on that front. Um, and then we, we also went into uh, basically rolling uh, resistance and also uh, drag from your uh, uh, chain line and gears, but uh, we won't go that far. We'll just stick with the aerodynamic part. But um, yeah, so what are your thoughts yeah. in, on, on that? Okay, so yeah, um, I personally will take my front derailleur off and use a one by narrow wide chain ring hmm. for race days. Um, so removing your front derailleur is supposed to be a couple watts, um, all things considered. Uh, it also, uh, for me, one of the big things is that I can use the, the wax and like the special lubrication stuff on that specific chain ring, chain, derailleur, cassette, mm -hmm. and have the whole thing very like sterilized, um, in a way and not contaminated by anything that I plan on training on. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's really helpful to kind of have those two different setups. Um, and you know, if it does end up saving me a water or two, then it, it kind of feels worth it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and for most people, like uh, chain line is pretty important and like gearing is pretty important. Um, in the US, we don't have a ton of TTs that are like uh, necessary to have a two by um, system yep. on them. So uh, for the last two years, I ran a 62 front chain ring and then either an 1128 cassette or an 1132, depending on the course. Oof, wow. Um... Did you run that at Gila or were you going to, you were going to run that at Gila? Yeah. The, Cause the 32 um, or 60, 32 yeah, yeah, yeah. would have gotten me up the climb just fine. Whoa. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the 60, 11 on the downhills would have actually been really important to have. Sure. Totally. I mean, it's a huge gear. Um, do you, uh, basically it's a Gila is a very specific TT, um, where you are doing the full array, like you're climbing in the sticks doing 20 and then you're flying down a descent doing, you know, uh, 50. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, it's, it, it's a pretty wide array. So what about this? Uh, we talked a little bit about like pedal efficiency. So, um, how about, uh, aerodynamic loss while pedaling? at a high speed and what that looks like. And oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd say, uh, and, and maybe it's not necessarily aerodynamics, but more like uh, conservation of energy. Hmm. Um, that if you feel like you're appropriately geared for a course, if you hit like maybe 110, 115 RPM, you should stop pedaling and clamp your knees on your top tube. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, um, I don't think super tucking, even if it were allowed, on your time trial bike is ever really a good idea. Um, you know, like, I mean, I'm like five, nine on the best of days and I can get really, really low by like sitting on the top tube, but it never really feels worth it. Um, and one of the reasons is perturbations in aerodynamics. So like, um, in the same way, you don't want to be one of those people who like drops their head, looks at the ground and then looks way, way up. Um, kind of like rhythmically to, to both sight and then be super aerodynamic. You want to be kind of in the middle of that all the time um, because aerodynamics are similar uh, to hydrodynamics in that like if you pick your head up a lot of um, and like create a less aerodynamic position and then 
tuck your head, creating a more aerodynamic position. It doesn't even out. Hmm. Um, so the way that air flows over your body will be disturbed by those large changes in aerodynamics for up to 30 seconds after you make one of those moves. Um, so yeah, position maintenance is very important. And that's why like, yeah, leveling your feet and like clamping your knees and then like using that turtle and pulling your head down lower without actually changing kind of your neck angle, um, is the most effective way, um, to kind of maintain or gain speed at those high rates of speed, like descending at the town trial at Gila. Um, yeah. Wild. That's crazy. (laughs) So that's, that's basically, uh, giving us the idea of that it could be faster to run a worse position and be able to maintain it compared to running a faster position and have to break it like three mm-hmm. times. Yeah. It depends on, I'm sure on speed and, and so on and so forth. But like, that's, that's pretty, that's very interesting. Yep. Yep. Um, and you, you see, you, you see it at the like top level at the world tour, you know, there are guys with almost seemingly relaxed positions who are like incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's comfort and power oriented and they don't, uh, like, move from that position at all unless they have to take a turn kind of in the in the hoods yeah man i feel like we should be using something other than comfort because <laughs> none of this stuff is like comfy i don't know i mean about... i kind of disagree right really? like really? All right. yeah um i think it's uh like physically the only thing that's really uncomfortable for me is like my upper back and neck in maintaining uh, like a very shrugged position yeah um, but I don't ever have like hip or knee pain or like saddle discomfort uh, totally. related to time trialing at all. Yeah. I, I, I was running a, a saddle that required a lot of like hip mobility because mm-hmm. I needed it and it just might, I was just really poor flexibility. I needed that activation. So I needed my hips really ro- rotated. So I had discomfort in that regard because essentially I'm sitting on the side of like I don't know, a plank. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that bothered me, but I agree with you on the rest. It's primarily uh, shoulders and neck and back. Um, yeah. I can't think of many other things. Yeah. yeah. And all of that is trainable, which totally. is cool. Totally. Um, so yeah, and we'll, we'll probably hit it, but like you start, you start like with one minute in position and yeah. you do it in the same way that you would do intervals or planks or like something like that. And you periodize and increase your total time and position slowly. Yep. Um, so that, yeah, you don't get to the start line and just like suffer through this thing. And then you like can't look up the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which you, is classic. We have t- teammates that do that. We do. You know, we definitely do. Do you, uh, well, I guess um, before we move on into that topic, exactly. Um, I'm curious if you have any other equipment that's more like gravel or road bike based mm-hmm. versus TT bikes. I want to include that a little bit more. Um, yeah. So I think, um, as far as like going faster for the same amount of Watts, um, yeah. drivetrain efficiency is really big. So, you know, if you're racing and you have the capacity to do it, a wax chain is, uh, something I would invest in, you know, you can get an old crock pot at Goodwill, throw the, you know, the wax pellets in there, do two or three chains, um, at the same time and just be ready to rock and roll. Um, I'd, I'd say like looking into the rolling resistance of your tires and switching from butyl tubes to literally anything else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, latex is good on the road. If you plan on doing time trials on good surfaces or, 
uh, crits or things like that. Um, and then tubeless is, has now really like taken hold both, um, from the perspective of good rolling resistance and a tubeless tire will fit a rim better, uh, more seamlessly than uh, a tire with a tube in it. Yep. So that has an impact on aerodynamics as well. Is there, uh, I don't, this is a little bit of a side tangent, but have you looked into amount of sealant and how that correlates to kind of, I mean, that's more rolling, but um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't, I have no idea. Um, I haven't looked into that. Yeah. So it's, it's like, um, it's linear Okay. in, in how rolling resistance interacts with sealant. Um, so putting in a little bit less than the recommended amount is fine yeah. and it's about a watt all right um so yeah just do that it's fine that's a, i mean, that's um, solid. I mean <laughs> the manufacturers ask for quite a lot so yeah. it makes sense that that would make a difference yeah. yeah yeah um and obviously like yeah the the higher volume tire i think the more you can skimp uh especially if you're only doing it for a race um you know but the other side of that is you know if you get a tread puncture on your gravel bike and it doesn't seal like it's 10 minutes of trying to fix that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really one of the new things is, is tire inserts, you know, especially like on the road or in a racing environment where you can run a flat and then find somebody who will change your wheel for you. Um, tire inserts are like about a watt to a watt and a half per wheel. Hmm. Um, but you can ride them for as long as you want. Um, and so I had a mechanical at Gila this year that had I run tubeless, definitely and tire insert maybe um i would have been able to race the next day <laughs> you would have, yeah you would have made it um yeah so yeah per on on an equipment side like something i'm definitely going to look into for next year um, yeah but i think you're you're touching on a very good thing it's like this goes back especially in probably uh mountain bike world and gravel world in particular is when is that security worth the cost of a, of a watt per mm-hmm. per tire like i had an athlete um, at marathon nationals five minutes in, he got a flat and wasn't able to change it. So he ran his inserts for the rest of the race. Wow. So three hour race on some really gnarly stuff and was, you know, it wasn't fast, but he did it and actually still finished fifth. So it's like, it's, wow. it's, a uh, you know, yeah. And in that example, totally worth the one watt that it mm-hmm. might be. I guess on that, while we're talking about this, do you, what about mountain biking? Is this something that you think people should be considering more with mountain biking? I'd say so. Yeah. Um, and the things that we kind of started off with where it's like, yeah, aero socks, good fitting kit, an aerodynamic helmet. Um, and from there being able to be in a position where you're not completely upright on your bike. Yeah. Um, are all really important. And then from there, I think mountain bikers can, uh, always like be a little bit better about staying in the draft and like paying attention on kind of flatter, less technical sections of, uh, kind of working together or like maintaining speed where they're, you know, uh, trying to rest, but yeah. also go as, as quickly as possible. I think the mountain biking is obviously like the extreme, the other direction where we are then pushing the fold of handling verse mm-hmm. arrow almost now, just as much as like power verse arrow. Um, but yeah, I think that, I mean, you look at the world cup circuit and there are some people that are really dialed and there are some people that you're like, man, who makes that kit? Yeah. <laughs> where did that even come from? And, um, yeah. <laughs> number plate placing yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that yeah. is where, you know, you really almost have to understand the rules and figure out the best way to, uh, 
stay both within and with and and outside of them as far as like trying to creatively place your number plate mm-hmm. so it's not a complete wind sale. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it all adds up, but it also just like the uh, like super lightweight tire and and things like that. Like it it could come at a cost. Yeah. So yeah. You know, you always have to weigh what's what's worth it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Pinning your uh, putting the like pinning from the inside of your skin suit so that the like uh, actual safety pin isn't showing um, or like spraying your numbers on for like a crit, I don't believe ever to be worth it, <laughs> you know, because it's like that's 15 minutes right there of like concentration that yeah. I just don't want to spend. Yeah. On um, that. Yeah, I get that. You know, so some of those some of those like funny things that like visually appear to be more aerodynamic um are just like wastes of time yeah um (laughs) so you know and uh, i mean seriously for some people who just have like enormous engines but aren't that flexible like a lot of this could be waste of time yeah yeah yeah, definitely Um, yeah and it's like when (laughs) probably it's more worth your time to look into like things like aero socks or (laughs) like different basically skin suits um what about hydration packs interesting one um i think the new ones um that they have that are like really lightweight and mm-hmm. kind of low profile mm-hmm. seem to be like no different as far as aerodynamics go um and even so we can we can take a, a page from kona they had um people found out that if you put a bottle down the front of your jersey it's more aerodynamic nice. so a lot of the top riders were keeping a cold bottle of water on their chest the entirety of the bike leg to not drink just to have there or um, to also drink. yeah yeah so once basically it heats up they would either throw it or put it in their hydration pack okay but the fact that it, it became a fairing on their chest <laughs> um that cl- helped close the gap and redirect wind like yeah. around the side of their body yeah um so I'm sure we'll see that at some point where people are putting on the hydration packs backwards to like, yeah, create like the, the turkey, uh, like the puffed out chest, right? Uh, um, oh, God. But yeah, as long as it's like good fitting, I feel like a hydration pack is worth it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and you see it so that the Lifetime Grand Prix series this year, um, most of the gravel racers at the top level were using hydration packs and using a lot of this um, aerodynamic kind of stuff. Um and it just got more and more crazy. I feel like as the as the season went on, as people were noticing what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I don't think you can be even successful at that level without a low profile hydration pack and like a strategy that requires you to stop maybe once maximum mm-hmm. um, over the course of any race less than like seven hours. Yeah, yeah. Which is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's on that side of things, it's something that is feelable. Um, and I think the best way of like feeling your discrepancy with, um, aerodynamics compared to another is going to be like in a little bit extreme environment. So like team pursuit, for example, TTTs, um, another one that I personally had to deal with was, uh, drafting off of somebody at unbound with arrow bars Mm. and how much harder that was, um, and in those moments of having him get up out of his aero bars and feeling the difference, um, and how infuriated it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the gravel world is just going to get more and more into it and finite on it. So yeah. And there's already like gravel aero bikes with, uh, clip on bar mounts yep. now. 
So like, man, I'm just getting into it. Um, all right. We have been going for 50 minutes already and (laughs) haven't touched on, uh, the athlete side of things as far as like how to, uh, physically adapt yourself to be able to do, um, a more, you know, aerodynamic advantage position. So, um, let's just touch base on or go into different examples of, of what you would have an athlete do to adapt to whatever, you know, whatever you want to dive into. Yeah. Um, okay. So basically, um, everything comes with a cost, right? So we, we have to like figure out what we're willing to sacrifice in order to like, uh, go as fast as possible. So that is very rarely power. Um, and so let's say we, we have this aerodynamic position that we think is like sustainable and good. Um, now we got to like ride in it. And so there's a couple things, um, that I always kind of key on. So position maintenance is the overarching principle of all of this. Mm-hmm. You basically want to be able to, to look the same on your first lap and your last lap, um, in this position. And so to do that, we have to like, not only adapt like physically, to it. Um, but like energetically there's, there's kind of some differences of, of riding in that aero position and not. Um, so things I always kind of key on. Um, so like we said that the neck and the upper back is always like the thing that kind of kills on a time trial bike. Mm -hmm. Um, so periodizing from the start of the season, this time of year to like your a event, how much time you're spending in aero position, um, is really important. So literally we, we, like kind of talk about the concepts of shrugging and then we go one minute shrug, three minutes, no shrug, you know, and very slowly ramp up the amount of time until they're able to basically shrug for, you know, an hour unbroken. And the hope is to do that before you start doing a lot of the higher intensity stuff on the bike so that it becomes second nature to be shrugging. And then from there, you're trying to make sure that you're doing intervals in these stressful positions so that your power matches what it is in your upright, comfortable road bike position. Um, and so with that, um, I think learning how to like roll your hips forward and, and maintain kind of more open, uh, posterior chain is really important. Um, that's something I'll have people do on the trainer or like kind of with a mirror next to them Mm -hmm. is like, you know, when, when you're like really suffering, you want to almost roll your hips underneath you because it relieves a lot of the tension in that position, but it like modifies your overall position. Mm-hmm. So we always talk about, you know, hip mobility and, and a lot of these like flexibility kind of things off the bike so that you're never compromised on the bike. Um, and then strength training in the gym, um, will help you increase your time to exhaustion in time trial position. Um, so anybody I have that's very serious about time trialing or basically 99% of the people I coach are doing strength training very seriously now and consistently throughout the year, um, which is really important, uh, especially, you know, kind of deep squats and, and mobility work and things like that, where you are pressing and moving weight, starting from a very closed position. Um, and, and then it just comes down to riding, right? So, you know, the learning how to steer your time trial bike, uh, is very important. Um, something that I try and have people start in like a parking lot, um, and understand kind of like the pulling on your arrow bars and like the elbow pressure and sighting through a corner without breaking aerodynamic position and then deciding for themselves how like comfortable they are doing that within a racing environment. 
Um, because if you're not comfortable doing it, and again, if you like go off the road, it's slower than uh, popping up and steering on your hood or yeah, on your horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, all of that really kind of comes in uh, in the same way that we do a lot of other foundational stuff in the off season um, because you don't want to wait. Yeah, it, yeah. That's that was my point. Was like I 100% do this same protocol, and the big thing though is do it in the off season, like do it, start it in the off season, build it through your base season. Um, what I see athletes try and do all the time, uh, is start it during or close to a race prep phase. And by that point, you're already working on production of power at a high rate. So jumping in and trying to do that into a new position is just going to, uh, degrade both sides of that. Like it's just going to make it impossible for you to do that power in position and then it's going to be impossible to hit those markers so you're just kind of like flatlining yourself in both both areas um and i've actually had athletes step back on the tt bike and continue to progress power on the road bike to try and meet them in the middle to a degree it doesn't always work Mm -hmm. um and then you know sometimes in that scenario i'll work on uh actually like above the mark power markers to try and again kind of like stimulate that recruitment in position and yeah. again it doesn't always work but it's a it's worth a shot most of the time yeah i mean like all the sprint stuff that we do on a road bike you can do it on a tt bike yeah um just do it seated you know starting at a, a big gear at a high speed and just like give it the beans you yeah. know um but yeah and then i encourage people on gravel bikes or road bikes or like any of the other disciplines to like understand and adopt that um, right angled arm kind of shrug shouldered position and use it on endurance rides um, because it's something you have to adapt to. So, you know, if you want to hang out in a road race and sit on the front all day, like you need to be able to do that comfortably and not have it like come at the cost of steady power. So, and you could do the same protocol that we were talking about earlier where it could be like five minutes that you hold position and you can do this like while you're out by yourself and say, all right, I'm going to, it's, it's similar if you're trying to do uh, adaptation to being with, able to withstand drops or being able to stay in your drops. Same thing there. Same with like doing hard efforts in that position. You need to adapt to that. So you can do five minutes on five minutes off. And it's a good way of kind of actually distracting yourself. And then all of a sudden, uh, before you know what you're doing, you know, you're able to sustain that for three hours and it's not a big deal when you jump into a race. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, probably same thing. No, definitely the same thing with uh, arrow bars on a gravel bike oh, and yeah. sorting through that. Like now's the time um, I need to get on some of my athletes to actually start doing that like now. Um, but yeah, I think that's the the strength training point is a good one. I think that um, if you are like, op- ideally we're talking about the ability to optimize a position and be able to utilize it. And in order to do that, like you can have this really fancy position, you can even have the ability to maintain it, but that doesn't mean that you aren't basically isolating what muscle groups you're recruiting. And that can change. Like you can become tight. You can uh, lose the ability to maybe like recruit your left glute and your right hamstring for whatever Mm. reason during the season, you see this happens all the time. And then all of a sudden you're totally out of whack and then you're not able to produce power in the TT position that you've maybe done an entire build protocol preseason to be able to do. So yeah, I totally think you're right about like maintenance all the way through. 
Yeah. And I mean, seriously, I, I had this happen at, uh, last year. It was like building the bike kind of too late, didn't get a ton of time on it. We go to Redlands and it's very intensive, like 10 minute kind of climbing effort in aero TT position. Um, and I just couldn't hack it. You know, it was like 10 minutes at what I would consider like sweet spot or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that was it. That's all I had. And, um, afterwards you're like, dang, like <laughs> something got missed. Right. And so, um, immediately went and got a bike fit, did all this other stuff and was able to like rectify the situation, fortunately before nationals. But, you know, if, if you're dialed in enough and you understand the field then you can figure out what's going on or, or that you need help and, and you need to like change things. But, you know, if Redlands was the first time I've ever ridden my TT bike, then I would have just been like, ah, oh, this is how time trialing feels. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you, uh, personally, are you, are your basically like power curve on your TT bike very similar to your power curve on your road bike? It is now. Okay. Because yep. of those changes. Because of the changes. Okay. Yeah. And it was all kind of down to extension and, and right. just some like, yeah, general bike fit stuff that I kind of neglected. Um, and it made a big difference. So yeah, we raised my seat, kind of did some other little things. Um, and positively impacted my power curve a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was, you actually like relaxed your position a little bit. Was that, is that right? Um, my seat came up two centimeters. Damn. And, um, <laughs> and then, so it's funny, you, you, again, like collect data and like pour over data and like the eyeball wind tunnel, uh, information, like always, always can get better and improve. Mm. So, um, yeah, I've already made adjustments from uh, my position at Pro NAS and Amateur Nationals nice. uh, because I felt kind of cramped. And I looked at pictures of when I was in my basement, when I was getting bike fit and things like this, and I'm sitting on the saddle in a different position. Yeah. So I need to adjust the front end, the reach on the bike in order to accommodate where I'm most comfortable putting down power. Yep. Because now I'm not losing the power being in that position, but I need the extra reach in order to be as aerodynamic as I want to be on the front. And so it never, it never ends. And, you know, like, even if you think you're 98% of the way dialed, like you got to look at pictures and ask your buddies and, yeah. and just like collect information constantly. It's a grind. Um, it's a and then post it in the arrow nerd slack and let all your <laughs> other really smart teammates roast you on whatever your ridiculous idea is. But then copy it. Yeah. Yeah. A couple months later. <laughs> imitation. Yeah. Started imitation yeah. and, and really like from there, you know, find people that are morphologically similar to you, um, yeah. and are really good time trialists and just copy their position. Yeah. No, I think that's huge. Imitation is great, but to a degree, like find somebody similar and then, uh, ask questions once you're in it. Like, don't just like blanket copy and then say, this is right. Because, you know, whoever did it and it worked for them, like yep. figure, like continue to evolve. That's like the way to stay on top. Um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah. I think above anything else really. Honestly. Yep. And like, seriously, innovate or fall behind. Like even, <laughs> even this yeah. off season, you know, like there's, there's fantastic time trialists out there who are working just as hard or harder than we are. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it used to be a couple of years ago, like everybody be nervous about like what the new tech somebody was willing to like spend $5,000 on was. But now we're on the other side of it where it's like, good, man, like catch up, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, even like the inner squad, uh, at project <laughs> echelon is probably the most fierce competition of anything as far as time trialing goes. Cause it's like, you have probably five of the six best time trialists in the country on the same team and they push like, each other. Yeah. yeah you yeah. don't ever want to lose to your teammate ever if anything so, yeah yeah <laughs> um one other point i will 
say on uh, progression and uh, preseason work and things that you can kind of do to help yourself adapt to your position and be able to sustain power and uh, you know economy um, is it's a simple thing to put your TT bike on your turbo and leave it there during the winter. Um, and it's one thing if you're in the Midwest and it's actually like, you know, you're more likely to ride it inside. But uh, the flip side of that is get out onto the roads in an environment that is similar to what your goals are so that you can experience what creating, you know, 300 watts at 30 miles an hour is versus doing 300 watts uh, on a turbo on a static resistance mode. Um, and what that then also holding that position even is. Um, and I think that's one of the powerful things about uh, doing aerodynamic testing in a velodrome is you actually like to maintain a like a really tight position while doing turns is mm-hmm. not easy. And it's something that I think like really uh, showcases how quickly you can fall apart. And sure, you're probably going to be making some right turns also, but it's also (laughs) like the concept that, you know, it only took you maybe 10 left turns to fall apart. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's really not that bad. So you're going to be experiencing that on the road too. No, I totally agree. That's a great point. Um, and my like last hot take is that I don't do, uh, TT bike, uh, recovery rides. I think they're a waste of time, Hmm. but I do do two hour endurance rides on my TT bike or something on a rest week. Right. So like never, yeah, never fall out of touch of it, but I feel like if you're just like tootling around at 100 watts, it can be better done in a less stressful position and you can be more recovered and use like a different day of the week to actually get something done. Interesting. Okay. And I guess that's like the balance of mental fatigue Mm -hmm. as well and productivity of doing it on your your TT bike. But I agree as far as the that's not helping you produce power in position that is actually probably teaching you the opposite. Um, What I will say is I use it for athletes that – Let's say, for example, they are I'm training them for toad, but then they have a 40k state TT that they're also doing thereafter, and throwing in a effort on their TT bike is actually like in the way. Mm-hmm. So then that's when I would say, hey, like it's worth it to get out on a recovery ride here in this yeah. example, um, because I don't always have the liberty to be like, I need you to do an hour and a half on your TT bike and then go out and smash sprints on your road bike. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. Have to hey, just sprint on your TT bike. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. Um, what other progression do you implement for, I guess like the, um, physical stimulus of production? Um, and... yeah. Moving outside of your like a uh, comfortable cadence range. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. So I know you, you prescribe a lot of like the, low cadence work, strength endurance stuff on the TT bike. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done it in the past. I think you can do it on either bike as long as your hip angle is pretty closed. Um, or similar to that position. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, and that stuff works really well. And then on the flip side, uh, being able to be stable at 120 RPM is a practice skill. It's not like a genetic predisposition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, being being comfortable outside of your, your own cadence range is, is really important. Um, especially for doing rolling terrain intervals, um, which you're going to have to do in a race, right? And if every time you, you come up to a little riser, you're suddenly doing 200% of your FTP, um, you're probably gonna have a really poor time, uh, at, at the end of the race, right? You're going to blow up. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes down to like knowing, knowing pacing and, and understanding things. And really the best way to do that is to get out on the bike, ride at 300 Watts and say, all right, I can, I can do this for the entirety of the interval and like be really comfortable or like I can't. And knowing that five minutes in is so much more productive than figuring it out 25 minutes into an hour long effort. Um, yeah, I, 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 I personally like to do, so he was saying 300 Watts, but really like, I think what we're both kind of probably getting to is like, you don't need to be doing this at a maximum effort, right? Like it actually needs to be sub so that you can focus on, um, form actually in accomplishing the extreme scenario that it's, you're being put in. So like the high cadence demands is oftentimes so that you are still able to do good power production in extreme environments in races and not mm -hmm. just be like debilitated or have to like hundred percent step off the gas. Yep. Um, so what I, what I tend to do is do like a progression build, um, kind of what Zach was saying with over gears. So like large gear base, and then also on the flip side, have them do it at like 105, 115 mm -hmm. RPMs, you know, whatever they can sustain, but it, you're still just at like a tempo range. So it's enough that you have to try, but it's also enough that you can still focus on, a different demand like the cadence and then once they get able to produce that to a uh, significant degree and they're comfortable and they're able to sustain position um then i have them go out and normally do that out on the road mm -hmm. and i try and suggest like a really straightforward box that has some rollers on it that'll be challenging um that are you know all right hand turns so you don't have to think and like it's uh that even just it's in itself can be a totally game changer as far as stimulus and it doesn't need to be this flashy thing and then of course um as you progress you can start to get into the meat and potatoes when you're starting to do like race prep efforts and stuff like that yeah i agree um and mastering your shrug right like look in the mirror put your arrow helmet on and like really understand what it means to like retract your scapula or like sink your head into a position um I think a lot of people just like pull really hard or squeeze really hard um, and it can be like a very fatiguing thing so mm -hmm. you know perfecting all these little things um, and then applying them in turn uh, to kind of build your like whole athlete understanding of time trialing uh, is really important yeah. so yeah you know uh, in the same way we kind of like try to take bites and chunks out of the all-encompassing arrowness today like do it <laughs> do it over the progression of six months and like understand each each little piece of it and then try and put it together and, and apply it on the road yeah and i think um on the back to the including road and gravel really all disciplines is going to be just stability and your mm -hmm. ability to say like stay smooth and solid and um you know that's kind of what you're trying to accomplish even outside of like a tt realm uh, just your, you know, you can do these efforts on a, on a road bike and just work on staying stable and um, not being all over the place. And immediately once you start doing an effort, sit as far upright as possible. So, uh, yeah, you're just kind of negating everything. So, yeah, breakaway yeah. practice is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. fantastic. And whether it's on kind of a local group ride or you just do it by yourself, um, in that adopting an aerodynamic position every time you pull through, um, is going to teach you that that position becomes more and more difficult to do the more times that you pull through. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, um, I like that. 
And yeah, so, you know, and, and kind of like tell, tell your buddies what you're doing. And at the end of a 25 minute interval, if you're pulling through and your like arms are completely straight in your drops and like your head is, uh, way above your shoulders, like obviously you, you need more position work and you need to be a little bit more thoughtful about how aggressive you are in those first couple pulls. Um, because yeah, it should look the same every time. Um, it should be robotic almost. I think that maybe something we haven't touched on is like the mental side of it too. Cause if you're, we're training the stimulus to be able to hold a position in order to, um, help with, uh, production of power and maintenance of power. Um, there's a mental facet of that too, that we're training you essentially to do this almost subconsciously. And then as a result in the moment, be able to recognize when you're starting to degrade. So when your position is starting to fade. Um, which takes a lot of control Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do of being like, I am redlined, I'm cross-eyed, but I need to keep my head down. Yeah, totally. Um, And I think part of it's understanding that you're saving energy by doing it. And um, in, I mean, in 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 a road bike situation, like a lot of energy and it's more than you think of, you know, especially when you're trying to get a break or you're, you know, like out of the saddle or sprinting or things like that. Like, the speed uh, is very punishing to a certain point uh, in relation to the the power output. So if you're pulling through at 30 and you're gassed and you know your your arms are totally straight and like your chest is hitting the wind, uh, you might have to do it at 60 or 70 watts more than in that like optimized aero position to go the same speed. Um, and those watts are like precious if you want to make it to the finish line and and like compete for a result. Yeah. Yeah. Man, um, I thought this was good. Yeah. This is a lot. Covered a lot. <laughs> uh, I appreciate everyone who made it this far. Um, and uh, hopefully you, you uh, got into the, the nitty gritty with us. Um, but yeah, thanks for everyone, thanks everyone for listening. Um, Zach, thanks for nerding out. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, everybody. Uh, let, let me know if you have uh, any other, you know, points or, or uh, topics as far as the uh aero nerd side that you'd like to hear Uh, there's definitely as zach mentioned plenty of people for me to converse with as far as uh that really get into this um zach's one of many um very good resource but also one of many so anyways thank you everyone and um yeah until next time see you guys